0: Hi, I'm Bob Boshansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, A Love Story. There is a lot going on in the politosphere these days. How are people people voting? Why are they voting for whomever they vote for? Today, my guest may give us some answers to those questions and to questions as yet unasked. The guest today is Ken Coleman, who together with John E. Jackson wrote the book, Dynamic Partisanship, How and Why Voter Loyalties Change. Ken Coleman is the Frederick G.L. Hutewell Professor and Professor of Political Science at the University of Michigan. John E. Jackson is the M. Kent Jennings Collegiate Professor Emeritus of Political Science and Professor Emeritus of Political Science at the University of Michigan. I am happy to welcome Ken Coleman to Politics, A Love Story. Hi, Ken hello <laughs> well, you guys uh, have achieved those uh, honors so we <laughs> might as well tell the, the public about them
1: Well I'm glad to be here and thanks uh, I uh, we uh, I'm happy to talk as much as you'd like about the book that we've recently published um, the main uh, the main thing we want to know in the book is um, why people, uh, might change their partisanship, uh, which we define, as, as many political scientists do, as um, loyal, loyal voting behavior and loyal participation um, in the service of, of a political party or its goals. Uh, and it's a, it's a, you know, our study is about four countries, uh, all democracies, uh, but I, uh, you know, we can talk about the United States as much as you wish today.
0: Well, I do have some questions about the other countries that you mentioned, which are Canada, Australia, the United Kingdom, as well as the United States. There are some uh, parallels, I would think, uh, between Great Britain and the United States that we can get into later. Uh, But uh, I want to start off with uh, something from your book. Uh, New movements are roiling formerly dominant coalitions within parties loyal ties to traditionally to two traditional governing political parties are breaking down in many sectors of society with long-standing loyal groups changing their partisanship or voting against their traditional partisanship to support alternatives. So you have a bunch of reasons why this might be happening.
1: Well, this is what's interesting about comparing all four countries. There's clearly something in common that has been going on across all four countries, and really in many other parts of the world with longstanding democratic systems. I would say Europe, Japan, you know Australia, uh, North America, even some of this in Latin America. Uh, there... It, I mean, there are several things going on, but I think the things that are in common are the people who used to vote left because of their class situation um, are have been voting more right. They've been voting more for conservative parties and people who uh, traditionally would have voted more for right wing parties. Um, such as uh, maybe what we would call white collar workers or people who make higher incomes or don't, you know, or more office worker types um, have been voting more left. Now, this is not a new thing if by your time horizon you're thinking a couple of decades. This is something that really started in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, it really got started. But it has reached I mean, we don't know if it's an apex, but it has reached a a crescendo, if you will, um, you know, with the elections of people like Donald Trump and with the appeal of the far right in places like Germany, the appeal of populist rightist leaders, um, really tapping into into anger and frustration um, on, you know, among the working class towards towards you know, the system, so to speak, are towards their station, uh, where they are relative to others in society, and they're voting more for uh, right-wing parties. Now, um, that's not the only thing we talk about. There are other things in the book that we talk about, but these are the primary moving ingredients. Now, in the United States, um, another major moving ingredient that... uh, seems peculiar to the U.S., at least among the four countries, uh, is, um, you know, the shift of uh, people uh, away from where they traditionally voted because for, uh, for reasons having to do with race and ethnicity and discrimination and, and protection for minorities. And the long-term uh, movement here is, is the, you know, shift of, um, you know, racial liberals, many African-Americans, many white liberals to the Democrats, and many, um, you know, uh, especially Southern whites, but many rural whites uh, towards the Republican Party. Again, this is not a new story. Um, This is something we've known for a long time. Uh, That shift, again, and really began in the 60s and 70s. But it has, again, we're in a moment of, uh, the Trump phenomenon uh, is a, is a, you know i don't know whether it's going to end here but it's a culmination of a shift rightward of you know working class primarily white people in the united states towards more right wing policies and um you know this is again it, it what's the peculiarity of the american race situation um you know is is on display here but it is also worth noting that uh, you can pick up a lot of motivation for the rightward shift of working class in Europe to dissatisfaction with immigration policies and frustration with, you know, uh, free trade and and what some people would call neoliberal policies of the European Union and so forth. So, so there's a kind of, um, you know, common element as well uh, that has to do with, you know, it, 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 well, let me put it this way. There are economic motivations, and we might want to conclude that. And I think the evidence is clearly there. uh, There are motivations having to do with, um, you know, who who you think of as one of us and who you think of as they, who do not belong in our society or do not deserve equal treatment. So this is, you know, these two things together. There's there's commonalities across the world's democracies in these shifts.
0: And in particularly the United States, uh, we don't have that many uh, uh, immigrants coming in, but we do have a changing demographic throughout the country. And traditional white working class men are losing their positions, or at least they think they are, and are fighting against that. Would you not say that that's uh, part of what's happening here?
1: Well, I think that's more or less correct. Uh, the, I mean, I would, I would, I would quibble a little bit with your claim that we don't have a lot of immigrants. Historically, we've had a lot of immigrants. Uh, but recently, 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 the spigot's been been almost closed. But, um, but that in and of itself is because of these rightward shifts. Okay, so so the policy itself is driven by popular pressures that are coming on to both parties. So both of major American parties face pressure from um, many of their constituents to limit immigration. Uh, the Democrats for slightly different reasons, historically for, um, you know, labor peace and for, uh, you know, wage, uh, keeping wages high and so forth. But the Republicans um, responding to this opportunity they have to win over working class voters, uh, and people, uh, especially older rural voters who who are suspicious of 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 immigration. so so, um, yeah, I think your, your characterization, I think, to a first approximation is correct. I think it's um not terribly well understood uh, the limits of that, and also the what actually triggers people to um, you know, to to actually make the shift to to to, to formally, um, you know, be supportive of let's say pro-union, pro union, uh, pro pro labor, uh, we would say kind of more liberal left policies, and to make that shift to be more supportive of of what we would think of as more populist um uh, conservative, you know, in modern American language, conservative policies. Uh, well, this is one of the things we want to address in, in, our, in, our, in our book. Um, and uh, we, we try to have a common framework to understand that across these four countries. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's a, the fundamental thing we find in the book is across all four societies, um, it's not really that people have changed their minds that much about what kinds of policies they like those have stayed relatively constant. Um, it's rather that they have a perception that the parties have moved away from them, that the parties, for whatever reason, have become less uh, close to their own interests. And so the working class that are shifting to the Republicans um, it's it's the reason is much more that they think the Democrats have moved away from them and that the Republicans have moved towards them than that those voters believe that, that their beliefs have changed or their preferences have changed about what policies they
0: want to see. Well, we see that with Republicans around the edges, not the core Trump people. There are about I think it's estimated 46 million people who will never change their minds that Trump is their guy. But people around the edges, and especially the more some of the more elite Republicans, are forsaking Trump and realizing that he's not in the best interests of the country moving forward. Um, it, and some of them feel that the Republican Party, as they saw it when they became Republicans, has moved away from them as well.
1: Yes, I think that's right. But I think the data you can you can really detect again to simplify things. But you can detect two types. There are people who are true believers in Trump and they voted for Trump, and um, because of that, and they're not going to move no matter what. And they love the guy and they think he's you know the answer to lots of their problems. Um, there's a lot of people, a lot who voted for Trump. Just because they dislike the Democrats a lot more, they f- fear the Democrats. They dislike them. They don't like what they stand for. Um, there's quite there you know. There's tens of millions of those people, uh, and um, some of them shifted away from Trump in 2020. Uh, that's arguably why he lost because they some of them shifted away from him because of COVID uh, because he just, it was just too much. And they had warmer, you know, warm feelings for Biden. Biden came across as reasonable, et cetera. Um, but if you look at polls closely, as we have, even we've, we've, we've extended beyond the book. We've looked at the 2020 polls pretty closely. Um, a lot of those people that voted for Biden voted for Republicans down the ballot. And they'll tell you, they do not like the Democrats. They do not like they do not trust them. They think they're pulling the, the part of the country to the left too much. And, uh, you know, so I think these are not, you know, the people, but there's enough of them that he lost the election. But for every one of those, there's more people who stayed and voted for Trump. Uh, and they did so because they just don't like the Democrats. So, yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you, you know, at the margins and and on certain issues, people do follow their parties. You know, they might have been. Um, you know, one, one interesting case is trade. So, there is some evidence that, um, in tra- because trade's a complicated issue and people don't fully understand all the implications of trade, that is, the Republicans have become more protectionist voters, and that kind of cuts a little bit against our book's argument. Um, because I we're, we're arguing that 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 mostly, most of the time. Voters' policy preferences don't change much, and what's changing are the, pol- the party's positions, and that's what's driving these changes.
0: Uh, we lost you a little bit there, Ken. Until uh, we get the connection reaffirmed, uh, I'm going to point out some things that Ken and his partner wrote about in the book. Uh, It may be tempting to conclude that parties themselves as institutions are becoming less important, less vital to democracy. The evidence, however, appears to belie this interpretation. If anything, partisanship moving uh, among the public continues to drive vote choices at least as strongly as in the past. Most people, most of the time, keep their partisanship throughout their adult lives and vote accordingly. But what you just said before you got cut off, Ken, is that that's changing a bit now.
1: Well, I, I, I still stay, we still stand by that. I mean, most people, most of the time, stay in the same party as a partisan for their entire life. Um, but proportions of the population that are significant enough to dramatically alter the political landscape of the country have shifted their partisanship in the course of their lifetime. So Southern whites, yeah. there's evidence that Southern whites, um, you know, this is not just generational change, uh, did in fact change their partisanship. They formerly were Democrats and they voted Democrat down the line. And now they're Republicans and they vote Republican down the line, Uh, the same individual. So there's quite a bit of evidence of that. Um, There is quite a bit of evidence that um, uh, well-educated, often highly paid women, especially urban women, um, uh, have changed their partisanship strongly in the democratic direction. Uh, and this is, you know, these are people changing their partisanship. So there it it's not a majority of the population. it's not it's not even this you know most, I would say, I'll use the word most, which is somewhat vague, right? But most of the population keeps its partisanship throughout lifetime. Uh, but um enough people and 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 the shift of the southern whites towards the Republicans, and the shift of so-called liberal whites towards the democrats including and then and, and in addition african americans shifting towards the democrats over a 70 year period this is there there's not a single fact that is more consequential for our electoral politics than that shift um, though that shift is is changed everything about the parties it's changed the coalitions it's altered so many things about who wins what they stand for uh, where in the where in the country they which party represents which part of the country these are fundamental tectonic shifts in our in our political
0: life uh, you've pointed something out in your book that i think is really important and that is the following Regarding Republicans and Democrats, should either party pull towards its extremes while the other party stays more centrist, the party moving toward the extremes will lose large proportions of partisans. Uh, Declines, for instance, in Democratic partisanship in key populations resulting from moving too far to the left in 2020 and upcoming 2022 will, will likely lead to substantial and consequential declines in voters for Democrats in national elections. For years thereafter, similarly for Republicans under the opposite scenario, they deepen their Trumpist uh, reputation and the Democrats signal that they are centrist. Um, this is a pretty important thing. I suppose <laughs> Uh, That would then say why Bernie Sanders was not the nominee for presidency, because he was too far to the left for many people.
1: Well, this is, of course, a a real debate within the political parties. Uh, The Democrats especially are, um, and their voices within the party, they're torn between the idea that they need to become more progressive, more activist, more uh, push bolder policies that um, really alter the economic conduct of our country, uh, the com- you know commercial regulation and tax policy, and um, just general fiscal support of citizens on an ongoing basis. Um, these, you know, th- th- those people are arguing that. Um, that that's the way to rev up the base. That's the way to turn out voters in elections. That's the way to generate excitement. That's the way to raise funds uh, to get, you know, shoe leather campaign workers out on the stumps, uh, out on people's porches. Uh, this is the, this is the path to, um, you know, maintaining uh, strength and gaining power in the Congress and presidency. And governorships and state legislatures. On the other side of that argument are people that say, you know, we're going to alienate uh, a bunch of uh, voters who, you know, don't want those policies. They're nervous about them. They see them as potentially damaging, disastrous. Uh, who's going to pay for these things? Uh, I am. I'm, you know, I'm a, a moderate Voter that pays, you know, a lot of taxes, and my taxes are just going to go up. Uh, jobs are going to flow overseas, uh, et cetera. So the the, the party is torn. Uh, in, in a nutshell, uh, whether to drift left or stay, stay, you know, to 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 hew more, but to to moderate policies. Um, I think that uh, you know, uh, my co-author and I, believe, you know wanted to, to address that question the best we could with the data we had. It's a very complicated question. It, it obviously, you can't play out two scenarios in the future uh, and, and see which one works better. Um, you're guessing about the future, but you're using past data to kind of get at this question. And um, the evidence from our book, um, and I'd say we've spent years looking at these data very carefully. Uh, the evidence from our book um, is that at least at the level of the perception of voters, uh, when the parties drift too far out in one or the other direction, um, they lose partisans. And when you lose partisans, that's that's a sh- not just a short-term problem when the next election, that can be, you can lose a whole generation. You can lose a Um, You know, you can lose, uh, you know, 10 years of, of strength in the Congress. And we've just seen it in the past multiple times. And uh, um, we have, you know, we have evidence down to, you know, kind of the micro survey level and, and pretty intense uh, analysis of, of, um, you know, how people perceive the reputations of the parties. And there's just we can't we cannot refute the following and it's an uncomfortable fact i think for the progressives in the democratic party and i think for the trumpists in the republican party i think it's i think it's uncomfortable for for the the most energized bases of their of these two parties right now the uncomfortable truth is um they 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 leave they leave the center of the political space at their peril Um, They really are uh, putting their, you know, because the long-term health of a political party is is generating loyal partisans who will turn out in elections. And uh, you, you, these, these can have long lasting legacies that, um, you know, when a party moves, moves way, you know, away uh, from moderation. And, and we, we didn't necessarily start out thinking that that was what we, was, we were going to find, but it is clearly, it, it's pretty clear in our data. And and you say, well, how come people don't, you know, do people not believe you? Do the progressives not believe you? But I think it's more complex than that, because the progressives and the Democrats and the Trumpists, you know, they might have more short-term goals, right? They might, you know, then, but I think you have, if, if you're a strategist for these parties, you need to have medium and long-term goals. And those, you know, are really, uh, I think, more consistent with maintaining a reputation uh, that doesn't, doesn't lean out into the wings too much.
0: Do you think at all that the events of the last year uh, might change some of your uh, theories from the book?
1: You, I, I assume you're referring to January 6th and the, the, an the, insurrection the, the, that
0: occurred yeah, the right. time in two hundred and thirty Yeah. Yeah. Years.
1: So you're referring to the attack on the Capitol. You, you, you could also be referring to, um, the, the, the sort of ev- efforts at the state level to, to, to affect voting, you know, uh, the ease of voting and making it harder for, uh, people to vote and, um, stuff like that. No, well, yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it's sort of a different dimension. Um, of conflict uh you know our our system there's a couple of things going on um i i think that the both parties uh i think the republicans have probably taken the lead more than the democrats on this but both parties have departed from norms and have decided to play much dirtier and and what i mean by that is um you know, there, there were sort of long standing norms of conduct and behavior within the Congress. There were norms and conduct of behavior by, and how the, how elections should be operated at the state level. Uh, there were norms in terms of, um, you know, uh, how we nominate people to the Supreme Court and how we approve them and so forth. Uh, these are all breaking down and, um, it's easy to point fingers at particular people or particular parties, uh, and maybe some of it's justified. Um, but I think it's, we're in a world for better or worse, where the control of the Congress and the presidency ends up being two out of three times on a a knife's edge. (laughs) It's very close. It's very tight. Um, the, uh, Um, You know, the Democrats have an advantage in partisans in the population, but Republicans have an advantage in the geography of the United States, in districting and in turnout. So, uh, you know, it it ends up being these really close elections Uh, when that's the case. um, You know, they're going to do what they can to, uh, you know. Usually within the law. Uh, obviously, this case uh, outside of the law. Now, I don't. January sixth um, was 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 so far out of bounds and so far out of the norm, and so uh, horrifying. Um, we, I, I, I'd like to think that that it's caused, um, you know, both of the of the most of the people within the political parties to pull back from that brink. Uh, I, I, I actually believe that, that that's the case, uh, with, and, and, the, and the people who are not are, are, you know, short-term profiteers on this, but um, we're, have the events changed our theories was your question, and um, I don't think so. I think what's, I, I actually think what's happening, again, is I think there's a, tens of millions of people, tens of millions, who were disgusted by January sixteenth or January sixth? Disgusted, um, but they voted for Trump, and they probably vote for him again if the opponent was, you know, a, a typical Democrat. Oh, I think there's many, many, many millions of Americans who are thoroughly disgusted, but they're going to vote for the Republicans again. And it's because they don't like the Democrats. They don't like what they stand for. Again, they just, it's, it's about, a re, it's a relative choice. You know, you can't, you can't look at one party in isolation. You have to say every voter is making a comparison. And, um, you know, go, go talk to people and they'll tell you, man, that was terrible. And Trump is terrible. But Man. I don't like, you know, I don't like the, the Democrats in Congress and I don't like Bernie Sanders and I don't like Elizabeth Warren. And and if they're on the ballot, I'm not voting for a Democrat, no matter what. I think a number of people like that held their vote, held their nose and voted for Biden. Um, enough to pull, put him over the, put him over the top. Well, by seven, and and Biden was lucky about that
0: by 7 million votes. uh... It was pretty close election. Well, it's a lot of votes. It's a lot of votes. You're right. Let me take this opportunity to reintroduce you for those people who have just tuned in. Uh, we are talking, this is Politics, a Love Story. Uh, our guest today is Ken Coleman, a co-author of Dynamic Partisanship, How and Why Voter Loyalties Change. And I'm your host, Bob Boshansky. Uh, You were talking about uh, the advantages of one party over the other. What's interesting is if we didn't have the electoral college and there was direct uh, uh, election of the president, the Democrats have won uh, or have had more votes in the presidential elections, seven out of the last eight elections. So things would be different. They also have, as you pointed out, with the smaller states, a structural advantage built in. Uh, There are 50 Democratic senators and 50 Republican senators, yet the Democrats represent 40 million more people. Uh, California, every, every state has two senators. California, each senator represents nearly 20 million people. Whereas in Wyoming, uh, each senator represents about 250,000 people. So that's a definite structural advantage. Plus, as you mentioned, the uh, gerrymandering, which makes the districts a little bit different. So uh, yes, uh, each may have certain advantages, but uh, the Republicans seem to have more advantages right now than do the Democrats.
1: Well, I don't disagree with that. The the geographic distribution of partisans around the country across state boundaries and within states across the congressional district boundaries and across the state legislative district boundaries, um, it it does fundamentally give the Republicans an advantage. There's no question about that. I don't think there's any dispute about that Um, yet. uh, They look at 2008. And it was a, a landslide for a Democratic president, and a filibuster-proof Senate temporarily, and a massive landslide in favor of the Democrats. So, um, you know, Republicans live in fear of uh, of that of all their all their advantages not being enough. Um, now, let me go to the Electoral College. You're you're exactly right. I think if I will say, though, you know, if there were no electoral college in the United States, campaigning would be very different and the party's positions on issues would probably be very different. And um, so it's it, it's really an alternative world that um, it's not only the case that the Democrats would win more votes than the Republicans and then win the presidency. Lots of things would be different. Uh, so the way that the parties and the candidates campaign this is one thing Donald Trump was right about. <laughs> Uh, He said, you know, if if there were no electoral college, I would have campaigned very differently. He's actually correct. And and everybody who works in campaigns knows that's true. And people who study voting distributions knows that's true. true. Um, So it'd be different. Now, the the Senate absolutely gives a huge advantage to uh, rural interests, huge advantage to low population areas. This is going to currently, in our current moment, favor the Republicans. Um, keep in mind, many farmers voted Democrat for a long time. Uh, The New Deal propelled a lot of farmers into the Democratic column. And, uh, you know, the Democrats dominated Congress for for 35 years uh, uh, overwhelmingly. I think, you know, several things contributed to that, one of which was the Democrats were able to capture a lot of the farm vote. Um, So, you know, you could make the claim that yeah, it's rigged against the Democrats, but that's only because they're not appealing to those people. So, you know, whose fault is that? I mean, that's, that's one argument you could make if you're like on the Republican side, you say we're winning the Republic, we're winning the the rural vote. You're not. So, (laughs) well, part of this is the challenge the Democrats have in keeping their their coalition active on other dimensions while trying to win the rural vote.
0: And not just um, that, but the uh, Latino vote as well. They're losing. The Latino vote
1: is shifting, shifting to the right um, as well. I think some of the same things we've talked about with white working class are actually happening in the Latino community in that um, some of the mistrust of free trade, some of the mistrust of neoliberalism, um, etc., are are fueling you know some appeal of, of these populist, more isolationist, nativist kind of, ironically, nativist policies. Um, many Latinos are voting in favor of candidates that want to slow immigration. So, you know, uh, this is a it's a complicated um, you know story there. But but anyway, the 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 point I guess I'm trying to make is that. Um, I agree with you about the structural disadvantages of the Democrats and the maybe advantages of the Republicans, the flip side, but that statement is conditional on the kinds of people that the parties appeal to based on the policies
0: they espouse. Um, We were talking a bit about um, why the changing loyalties, and I think that with Trump having been there in office for four years and toying with despotism and voicing racist and misogynist thoughts aloud, that let the unspoken feelings of a part of the electorate agreeing with Trump and to act out their feelings. I think that's part of what happened on January 6th.
1: Yeah, I mean,
0: that's
1: probably right. I mean, the, you know, Trump, um, is very, very popular in many communities in the United States. And he, he talks about things that those people care about that other politicians don't talk about. He talks in a manner that those people feel very comfortable with that other politicians don't talk about. And, um, he projects a certain kind of leader image that is very appealing to certain sectors of the population. And he's unique. I mean, he, there's nobody else like him in the political landscape and he has no competitors on these things. He combines lots of things that these communities absolutely adore. Um, now, the policy content is something that Trump has been talking about for you know 20 years uh, when he first toyed with running for president in two thousand. He's he he's he's been against free trade and he's been against immigration and he has been against a lot of international alliances and spending a lot of American money on international organizations and alliances. He's been pretty consistent. That stuff plays very well in certain communities. So it's not just that he's a carnival barker and that he's a, you know, whatever you can call him a clown. You can call him whatever he wants, whatever you want. There is policy content behind protection for him in many communities in the United States.
0: As a political scientist, It's not just politics that you are involved in, you have to understand economics to a certain degree. So when somebody says they're gonna increase the GDP of this country by three to 5% and yet keep out immigrants, how the heck is that gonna be done? We have used immigrants all throughout our history to increase our economy. So how can that be done without immigrants and therefore all these people who are against immigration uh, they're going to have a lower standard of living in the long run.
1: Well, I was, you're you're exactly right. I concur. Um, It's also the same story with trade. I mean, we've, we've grown our economy through trade uh, among other things Uh, and you know, I don't know 95 out of 100 economists will tell you that that um, you know a general attitude of isolationism on trade is just a bad idea. Um, but that doesn't mean you know the, the 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 person who loses his or her job when the factory closes up and moves to Mexico doesn't at some visceral level Understand that the free movement of capital and lay and and money across borders wasn't good for them in this particular instance. Um, you know there uh, there are immediate economic consequences that people observe in their communities and their lives to some of these policies that have been the dominant kind of you know Atlantic neoliberal economy. Uh, economic policies for for a long time so people under people see with their own eyes or at least what they see as a direct causal link between you know these elites in washington negotiating trade agreements uh, uh, with the, um you know at the international level and their factory closing and moving to vietnam to make you know whatever gym shoes so uh people you know um you can either fault them for not knowing their economics better, or you can, you cannot fault them for just kind of uh, not seeing the the nuances. Like it's pretty disruptive. You know, economists will tell you, you know, well, yeah, we're all better off if we can trade sneakers for, um, you know, certain kinds of things with Vietnam uh, and, and those people will get rehired doing something else doing, you know, software or whatever. But uh, their, their lives are tremendously disrupted it leads to uncertainty so they they there there's a there's a guttural intuition about the effects of these kinds of policies on people's lives and they and they um you know you it, you can't you can't escape you can't escape the the sort of fundamental anti-elitism when they see talking heads saying one thing and then when they lose their jobs they see another that's gonna like if that's done repeatedly, the someone who comes along and says, those elites in Washington are screwing you. <laughs> that's gonna play well, right? and 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 you know Maybe. It's not like, it may be it may be not. I mean the, the, here here's one way to think about it. Um, you know, working class voters globally since the start of the industrial Revolution, um, whenever they've been mobilized to vote in a particular way as a block, it's been to mobilize their kind of anger and frustration towards something. So you know, if you're if you're a labor organizer in the 1920s or 30s, you're you know you're you're going against the factory owner, the man, you know, the bankers. Uh, if, you know, you're mobilizing the farmers uh, in in the New Deal era. You're mobilizing them against the 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 bankers that are squeezing them, the loan officers, the you know the 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 the, the big city, uh, you know traders that are screwing you for for the price of your wheat, you know. So, um, you know, you're angry, but that drove them left in the past, right? It drove them to the left because it drove them into unions and it drove them into cooperatives and and you had all these kind of left left uh, grange type things uh, on the prairie, right? Um, but you want, you sort of wonder if that's run its course or, um, you know, like uh, something has changed because now these same types of angers and frustrations, if you want to change it, switch, you know, move forward a couple of generations from the twenties and thirties to the 2010s. And um, now all of a sudden their, their anger is directed at, you know, globalists at people who promote open immigration, uh, the talking heads on television who talk about the glories of free trade. Um, you know, those, they, this, they, they, these people are like, what? You know, of course I'm angry at those people. Uh, they're, you know, they talk this talk, but they don't deliver wages for me. My wages have been flat since, you know, for decades. And I'm losing relative to the, you know, uh, the, the doctor and dentist down the street, you know, they're big and building bigger homes, and I'm I'm not getting anywhere. You know, I've been making forty thousand dollars for for twenty years, and you know, in real money, you know, even inflated money. My wages are going down, right? And these people, they they're going to be very very receptive to a right wing politician that comes on and points fingers at those uh, East Coast elites.
0: Except that I think there are two factors here that could be game changers. And the biggest one, of course, is COVID. That has changed Mm -hmm. our way of living for almost two years. That has killed almost 900,000 Americans. Uh, And many of them are uh, more conservative because they refuse to get uh, vaccinated and they get COVID and they die. Whereas people who have been vaccinated They might get sick, but they're not going to die for the most part. And the second thing is, uh, as you pointed out, when one party goes too extreme and the other party seems moderate, uh, the extreme party loses out. And the big lie, I mean, yes, there may be 46 million people that are going to be Trump people no matter what. But the other people listening to this big lie repeated over and over and over again are going to wonder, well, that really can't be true, because if Trump really won, he'd be in office. But he didn't, so he's not. Uh, I think those are changing things, don't you?
1: Yeah, I, I do. And I think Trump lost a lot of voters in the suburbs of the United States, big cities, um, because of COVID. Um, and I think there's data to support that, although that's not part of our book. Cause it's, we, we looked at data earlier than that. Right. COVID is, um, yeah, COVID is a game changer. It's, it's a game changer for almost anything we can think of on, uh, in the, in, in human activity. Uh, and I'm, it's well beyond my knowledge and, and anyone's really to, to say what the scope of all those changes are going to be. It, there's no question. It's massive. I think you're getting at though a little, you know, there's a, distrust of expertise there's a deep anti-elitism that has crept into political discourse especially um on the republican side and on the right-wing side although although i will say not all right-wing parties around the world have had the same level of kind of anti-elitism anti-science uh attitudes creep into their into their politicians rhetoric and into the attitudes of their publics Um, but it seems to have infused the Republican party yeah i mean this is a it's it's a uh as sad as it could be to say think that people um people are dying because of misinformation about covid and um uh but that misinformation is coming from people who are profiting off of it uh people who are winning office off of it um and it's it's uh, you know it, uh, i <laughs> it's hard not to be disgusted by it. Um, but uh, yeah, it's misinformation and it's misinformation about the 2020 election. Um, you know, I do think there's a lot of people who don't really believe it, but you know, they're like, well, this is what politicians do. They lie all the time. Yeah. So I'm just not, you know, it. again, they're much more, they're hardcore people, but there are, there, you know, a lot of the people are going to vote for Republicans in the next election. Who don't believe the big lie, who got vaccinated, got boosted. Uh, They believe in science, but they're going to vote for the Republicans. And there's a lot of them. (laughs) It's a lot of those people.
0: And that's what you talk about when you say partisanship and the loyalty that people show towards one party or the other. Uh, You pointed that out any number of times about how partisanship is actually loyalty. And yes, there are those people who are so loyal to the Republican Party that no matter what has happened, although I will have put this caveat in there. What might happen if Donald Trump is indicted any number of times? Do you think that will dampen uh, the enthusiasm of some of his followers?
1: Um, I, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen if Donald Trump gets into serious legal trouble. He always seems to escape or run out the clock. Um, I don't know. That's a hard prediction. I, I just don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I. Um, I mean, keep in mind, there's you know lots of other candidates in the Republican Party who want to be president, and um, you know they'd be delighted to see Donald Trump leave the stage uh so um i don't know we we keep thinking we keep waiting for the day when the republicans are going to turn on donald trump um i, I was we were waiting for that time during his presidency and when he was first impeached i thought there was a chance that that some, that they would turn on him kind of the way you know some of the republicans turned on nixon um but they you know it, it didn't happen and and part of it is it's republican base you know they're you're gonna lose your primary if you're a senator or a, or a member of Congress if you buck trump right now that's the situation right now you'll lose your primary so you want to keep your job you know you don't turn on trump and so
0: it's um, fear it's fear basically uh, well
1: it's, uh, fear of losing your job
0: you know well, sure. though, fear of tr- what trump will do if
1: trump will make you lose your job trump will okay. you know he'll your your livelihood is politics your livelihood is your you know, uh, you know, he's, he he can, he can single-handedly make you lose your livelihood. So that's, oh yeah, that's a lot of power now. And now he may leave the scene as quickly as he arrived. I don't know. Um, we'll see, but, um, you know, he has, he has a stranglehold over the party right now.
0: One of the things you point out in your book, uh, near the end, it's one of the conclusions is that electoral competitions can and do largely ignore the preferences of voters because those preferences are easily manipulated, are mostly noise, or cannot form the basis for informed choices. Uh,
1: No, we were arguing against that. You were were, arguing? We were arguing against that. view. Oh, so you were pulling, you're pulling a quote from uh, we were characterizing a set of literature that describes people as very manipulable and, um, you know, uh, easily misled. Now, keep in mind, people are being misled about COVID. People are being misled about certain things. Um, but uh, it's, it's maybe smaller in number than, than you think. Um, but no, we're arguing that, that, that that is one portrayal of voters, but instead we find actually that voters, um, have a decent understanding or at least a perception that is consistent with some evidence of which party tends to, uh, stand up for their interests better than the other party. Um, and this is a controversial claim because there's this kind of what's a matter with Kansas uh, argument that's about 10 or fifteen years old that all these white rural or working class voters are misled by the Republicans and voting against their economic interests. Um, I think that's a I think that's very simplistic and not um, that holds water if you really go, you know, it's people, people want certain things in their communities and want their their uh, jobs to be a certain way and they want their um, taxes and their churches and their schools to be a certain way. We can argue with that way. We can think they're wrong. We can think that they're, they've got the wrong values. But I don't think people, um, you know, COVID aside, you've raised COVID, that's different because that is, Novel and they get conflicting advice, and there is misinformation out there clearly. But in general, on most policy questions uh, and so forth, I think, you know, people, you know, when in a competitive electoral environment, people tend to gravitate towards the party that espouses the view of society that they tend to agree with.
0: So we were talking about COVID, and one of the things that that may have done is given labor a little bit more strength. Uh, We've seen a couple of uh, high profile, but very small cases like at a Starbucks and maybe at an Amazon warehouse where so many people are out and so many people feel that they needn't take that risk without being compensated. And so they're voting for unions. Is that a trend or is that an anomaly?
1: I think it's a i think it's a trend in a in a in a in a sort of um, constrained labor market where there's um you know short labor supply and and workers have um you know people figure out if if, if they can act collectively they can get some power and so um you know uh the, the sort of limiting of immigration and the dropping out of the workforce of, um, certain p- kinds of people, um, has led to labor shortages. And that's going to give a lot of, of, uh, uh, you know, tilt, tilt things a little bit towards, towards them. I'm not, I'm not a labor economist and I'm not an expert on industrial relations, but, um, you know, I think it's pretty plain to see that the, um, the labor shortages are driving a
0: lot of this, but the shortage is a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's not that we don't have enough workers. We don't have enough workers willing to take the risk for the pay that is being offered. There are people that are opting out of the labor market monthly in the millions. So that's something different that's going on. And I think that's COVID is changing things in many ways, not just in a political way.
1: Yeah, no, I agree you know, there's a lot going on there. I mean, again, a labor economist would know more. Um, they're, uh, you know, the stock market's pretty high. Their home values are really high. Uh, the wages of it's some wages of workers are going up. So the spouses of those way, those wage earners feel like they don't have to work. Um, so, you know, and, and, and the government benefits during COVID gave people, Uh, some cushion. Uh, You know, so there's, you know, yeah, I I don't know, who knows how long it's going to last. We have no idea. But for now, the labor shortage is real. It's driven by lots of things. Um, And you're right, people are dropping out of the workforce because they don't want to do these jobs. Um, But as wages go creep up, People will return to those jobs. Um, you know, there there's a there's a pay level at which people will do those jobs, I believe, and I think a labor economist would agree.
0: So, so we have about a minute or so to go. Is there anything in particular you would like to leave us with?
1: Well, I I I guess I would say. Um, you know that that there's a lot of commentary about politics, about our parties, about uh, voters. You know, I, I think it's important to 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 try to pay attention to the evidence carefully. Um, I do think our democracy is in a very dangerous moment, um, but I will say that uh, strong partisanship by people. Uh, loyalty to to parties. It's actually a good and healthy thing because it makes people invested in elections as opposed to other shenanigans. So, you know, uh, the, the, the alternative to winning elections is to trying to do it with violence. And so we should actually encourage people to become invested in working on behalf of winning elections in a free and fair manner And partisanship itself is not the enemy. It's good that people are loyal partisans. We want that because they get invested in the election process as opposed to some other thing.
0: Well, this has been an entertaining discussion. I really thank you, Ken, for coming on and and talking to me about your book, which is Dynamic Partisanship, How and Why Voter Loyalties Change. If you write another book in another year or two, looking backward to this period of time, maybe we'll have a different conversation then. And I hope you'll uh, remember when you do your next book that this is a place you want to come to talk about it. Thank you very much, Ken Coleman uh, from the University of Michigan. I want to thank you very much.
1: Thank you. This has been fun. Thank you.
0: Good. Bye-bye.